0: This episode of Brio TV, the podcast is brought to you by our friends at Hollywood Suite, home in May of the gripping true crime drama, The Pembrokeshire Murders, and by the CTV Drama Channel, where season four of The Handmaid's Tale premieres Wednesday, April 28th, and by Super Channel, where the documentary Catching a Serial Killer, Bruce MacArthur, premieres April 30th on Super Channel Fuse. everybody. Welcome again to another episode of Brio TV, the podcast. Or if you're just joining for the first time, welcome to another episode. Laura, to this episode. Anyway, welcome. (laughs) Anyway, before we get started, I want to take just a minute to set this one up. Now, this was the very first podcast me and producer Phil Hong recorded way back in October of 2019. That was well before the COVID shutdown. And it was back when you could actually go to a a studio and record side-by-side and get the sound just perfect. So if it sounds a little different, it's because this particular episode was recorded live at the Humble & Fred Radio Studio in Toronto. The reason for recording this one ahead of time was that my guest, who lives in New York, happened to be in Toronto at the time. This is a gentleman I've known for over 20 years from attending many, many television critics' association press tours, over the years, Bill Carter is his name, and Bill, for 26 years, was the TV columnist at the New York Times. He's also a best-selling author. He wrote the great book on the Leno Letterman feud, The Late Shift, and also The War for Late Night, the follow-up book about Conan O'Brien and Jay Leno. And uh, he was in Toronto back in October of 2019 to work on his latest venture. He's teamed with a Canadian company to uh, the Toronto Cream Productions to produce this amazing documentary series, The Story of Late Night. It's a seven-part series premiering May 2nd on CNN. Bill is the writer and executive producer and did many of the interviews. So if you want to hear some great inside stories about all the players in late night TV, everybody over the years, this double bill is for you.
1: I'm Bill Carter, and I'm going to talk to Bill Briu because he tied me up and tortured me like that chick in misery.
0: Well, welcome everyone to the Brio.tv podcast, and I'm uh, very pleased and uh, honored this morning. Uh, I guess I can't say this morning, though, Phil, can I? I can say whatever I like. Should I start it all over again? No. No? Okay. (laughs) Folks, as you can tell, we're at the inaugural Brio.tv podcast. (laughs) And uh, I am already stumbling four or five times, but uh, uh, I was uh, absolutely sincere. I'm thrilled that uh, this next gentleman is here with me. He's a celebrated best-selling author. Uh, you've seen him on CNN, CNN correspondent, and uh, also a television documentary producer. And we'll learn more about that in a second. Uh, Bill Carter. Bill, thank you so much
1: for helping me kick this off. Bill, I wouldn't have missed this for the world. <laughs> I appreciate that. I came all the way to Toronto just to okay. be on your And this head. is your first time in Toronto. It is indeed. Yes. Wow. A very you, nice. Very beautiful city. Good impression yeah. so far. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yes.
0: Okay. Um, it's not
1: winter, Bill. No,
0: it isn't. You're lucky. <laughs> it's, it's Here we are in October, and it's pretty mild. Very nice. Nice.
1: But you live in New York City, which is yeah. not too different. That's Tem- where I grew up. That's my native land, yes. Yeah, no mm-hmm. kidding.
0: Or you uh, the Brooklyn? A
1: Brooklyn guy, yes. Right. When I lived in Brooklyn, Bill, it was like, you know the place that people in Manhattan disdained right you know you couldn't if you got a cab in Manhattan and said I, I, I want to go to Brooklyn I'd say get the hell out of the cab right right I <laughs> well, but now Brooklyn. yeah now, now it's, that's the cool place hipsters are you, all in Brooklyn you can't get into Brooklyn
0: right you can't it, it's incredible it's is, amazing is there pressure on you to grow a beard or to be a hipster or any <laughs> of those things no I'm just woke <laughs> nice that makes one of us <laughs> uh, well good for you and, and were you, when you were a lad did you root for the
1: uh, Dodgers or did you root for so the yankee i know well, you're a yankee fan. yes I, I my dad was a yankee fan so so we were I, you know the dodgers were barely there when i was a kid they right. left right but the whole you know everyone was a dodger fan in brooklyn except my family basically right okay <laughs> so it's worked out yeah it worked out
0: and the yankees are doing pretty well
1: they did well this year uh they do well most years they do yeah. you know you know the last time the yankees did not have a winning record
0: Um.
1: Uh, no i don't 1991 really 1991. They they have been 500 or better every year, which is a record, a second time, all-time. The record, of course, is held by previous Yankees right, right, from exactly. the 20s through the 60s. Well, <laughs> on behalf of Blue Jay so, fans everywhere, <laughs> yes. I'd like to thank the Yankees
0: for taking a dive those early 90s. Yeah, that's it, right. It helped they us helped out, out a lot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, you're here in Toronto, uh, obviously, to uh, uh, work on a documentary on Late Night. Tell yeah. us a
1: little bit about that. Yeah, so... Um, I've written a couple of books about late night. Yes, I understand <laughs> the late for, shift and uh, the war for late nights. Yes. Great books, by the way. So, so that thank you. And so, um, when I was approached uh, uh, by a production company, which happens to be based in Canada, yeah,
0: which is interesting,
1: mm. um, they needed someone who kind of knew the subject, <laughs> right? Yeah, and who better? <laughs> and, and so they called on me, and uh, we've we had pretty good success um, in lining up. A lot of the bigger names. Oh, my goodness. Yeah,
0: pretty good success. Uh,
1: being <laughs> modest. Good success. My
0: goodness. You told me a bit about this last night. Let's uh, just regale uh, listeners
1: with who's who's part well, of the show. Well, it would be easier to regale them who's, with those who aren't. missing, right. But yeah. the, I didn't get Letterman and Leno um, to, to cooperate with this, though I've had great success with them in the past. Right. Dave just doesn't give right. a damn anymore about to, yeah. talking about stuff like that, although he has, you know, he will get on with conan and talk but not me necessarily currently there's that conan o'brien um needs a
0: friend podcast and he's Mm -hmm. the first guest uh, this new season and and express some remorse about sticking around so long he wished he had quit earlier have you heard that from i have Mm -hmm.
1: and and of course before he left um that was my opinion uh before Mm -hmm. he left and certainly people that i know on the show kind of felt that way uh, he, he, although they were employed so right right <laughs> <laughs> well his, his joke on the show was
0: that um the minute he felt it was no longer fun and, and it wasn't working for him he, he would
1: quit 10 years later <laughs> exactly <laughs> and he kind of did that right not, maybe not 10 years but yes yeah. yeah. but anyway so he he's he just not and then Jay, for reasons I still can't understand, decided at the last minute he wouldn't do it because Dave didn't want to do it. Hmm. But we do have Kimmel, and we do have Conan, and we do have Seth Meyers, and we do have James Corden, and Trevor Noah, and... Uh, you Lauren know, Lorne Michaels. and Lauren Michaels, mm. and yeah, Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. So we we got, uh, what I would say, the bulk of the yes. big names, and, and many, many other... Um, Behind-the-scenes people, writers, producers, right. uh, guests.
0: And uh, these are all folks that you have a relationship with, not just as an interviewer, but you've known for well, many years.
1: Because I covered television at the New York Times for many years, mm-hmm. I had reason to write stories about just general things. But then when I wrote the late-night books, it, it really gave me sort of an interesting exposure to the inside of that whole world. And a lot of people liked the books. I mean, people who, yeah. you know, who didn't know me otherwise... Would say, Oh my gosh, you wrote that book. I mean, you know, it, people in show business uh, who found it interesting because they didn't know a lot of things yeah. that had, like uh, Ben Stiller, for example. I didn't know Ben Stiller, and I just ran into him one time and things. Oh my God, I got to talk to you about your book. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. And well, your book, uh, you know, when I
0: read them, my goodness, uh, it, it, folks do pick them up. Uh, you bring the reader right there. You're you're standing under a lamp post and and it's a bit chilly out, and you're you're getting the scoop on Leno and Letterman right from uh, producers. It's almost it seems like something out of Watergate. Uh, they're, they're yeah. like they're written like great thrillers. So uh, well, I that love was the book.
1: my idea. So yeah. my idea was to write narrative nonfiction, not not mm. to do a journalism book. So I I don't say according to so and so. I try to recreate the scene. Yeah. So I mean, like in the War for Late Night, the scene where where Conan gets word that he's going to lose The Tonight Show. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, I reread it recently, and I was like, this is, (laughs) it's amazing. You know, it's just amazing. And there were two NBC executives and Conan and his producer in the room. So all four of them tell me the story, and they match. So I can say, I can just write it. I know this is what happened. Right? And, you know, they had the direct dialogue for when Conan describing his feelings about Jay coming back. Right. He says right. to them, "What is it with this guy? What has he got on you?" Yeah, <laughs> you know. And and the other guys were like, "That's what he said." <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. So, and I I really like doing that. It's hard because you absolutely have to. Break it down and make sure you get everybody. You, oh, know, you yeah. can't miss somebody who will later say that isn't what I said. It's a lot of work. Yeah. H- have you ever
0: had an op- uh, a situation where someone later said, "Oh no, I never said that,
1: Bill." No, no. Well, you well know. the the mo- n- notable one situation I had was with uh, Jay Leno's manager agent Helen Kushnick in right. the first book, and um, she didn't. The, the, she didn't. Well, most of the stuff I had her saying, she said that she didn't complain about that. But but she had famously. Um, planted a story in the New York Post when Johnny Carson was like mm, two years away from retiring or something, and she w- wanted to get Johnny out so Jay could get the job. Yeah. <laughs> she uh, got planted a story with two reporters from the New York Post uh, saying NBC has a plan to get rid of Carson. Completely made up. Wow, it was not true. This is like Shakespearean, isn't it? Well, I mean, it, it was very interesting yeah, that yeah. one of the reviews of the of the first book said it read like yeah. a Shakespeare history play with the kings and right. all this stuff. But anyway, so she wanted to sue me over this, right? And uh, unfortunately for her, mm. the intermediary who did all this for her was my source, <laughs> and I had him on the record mm. saying she called me, I called the Post Report, I told them this. I, and I'm like, I don't know yeah. what you want from me, but here's a tape of the guy telling me everything that happened. Yeah, so, that usually yeah. brings things to a conclusion. <laughs> yeah. So. Good for you. But but that was one the only time. And, and interestingly, there were people who did not come off especially great, uh, like Warren Littlefield in the first book. Right. And uh, he called me up. He said, listen, I, I know a lot of this is not great for me, but it, every word of this is true. Wow. Yeah. So, Yeah,
0: and, and you were just... you just spoke recently with warren littlefield who's yes. doing very well now producing
1: handmaid's tale and uh, and and uh fargo
0: yeah and he's yeah. quite a gentleman you terrific know. Yeah, guy good yeah
1: guy. a good guy good yeah. guy yeah not that uh common in hollywood uh executives. no no almost canadian <laughs> <Yeah>. no <laughs> he's just canadian nice but actually <laughs> from queens <laughs> oh well that's even better
0: Folks at Super Channel, an all-Canadian company, have been good enough to sponsor these podcasts for a while now. Usually we know them from curating movies, sometimes lately in virtual festivals. Now, here's something a little different. Catching a serial killer, Bruce MacArthur, tells the horrifying true crime story of Toronto's most prolific serial killer, Between 2010 and 2017, a total of eight men disappeared from the neighborhood of Church and Wellesley, the gay enclave of Toronto. This 90-minute documentary talks to the homicide investigators, criminologists, and other experts who cracked the case. At the center of it was an unlikely suspect, Bruce MacArthur. He was a grandfather, a mall Santa, and a landscaper, who was discovered was burying body parts in the yards of his high-end clientele. See how he was finally brought to justice in catching a serial killer, Bruce MacArthur, when it premieres April 30th on Super Channel Fuse or on demand starting May 1st, exclusively in Canada on Super Channel. And we're back now with Bill Carter and the story of late night. You and I, I think, I mean, I've I uh, attended for many years this thing called the, the Television Critics Association. Press tour. Press tour. We yep. meet down in uh, Los Angeles at two hotels every six months. Yeah. Uh, forever and ever. Uh, and and uh, you, a little bit before I, I joined. Oh, way in. before. <laughs> you started. I'm the, much older. Yeah, at the no. Baltimore Sun. I did, yeah. And, and But you were at New York Times 26 years, was that? Yes. It? Wow. Yeah. Tremendous. And. and um, Uh, So, you you know, you do go a little bit further back. But my first uh, uh, opportunity to encounter you was... You were on stage at an HBO press session promoting The uh, the Late Shift. The The movie version. The movie version, which you also wrote. uh, For HBO. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, I remember this vividly because (laughs) I was new to the tour, and the room, there's 200 critics and an uglier room you will not encounter. (laughs) This is, I don't know if I would describe it, if it would be sort of like the floor of uh, Congress right now, maybe. Yeah. Uh, But but there's like these guys, hard-bitten journalists at the time. And they, like you could feel the piercing hatred in the room, their eyes like boring <laughs> a hole through your head because they were so
1: damn jealous yeah. that you were doing this. Yeah. What was that like for you? It was particularly awkward because there was a few people that were kind of friends of mine. Right. And uh, there just was this incredible resentment. And, you know, it's, it wasn't that they resented that I wrote the book that was really successful. Right. But then HBO buys it. And is going to make a movie, and you know, I didn't plan on writing it. the The circumstance happened that what when the bu- book rights were bought, I went to the New York Times and said, "Look, they're they're making a movie of this. Maybe I shouldn't write about HBO until the thing is done." And they said, "That's perfect. Do that." Right. And and so I was already cleared not to write about HBO, and the guy who they hired to write the movie, uh, it took me nine months to report and re- write the book. Okay. Nine months. Yeah. Uh, I killed myself to do it fast. Yeah, yeah. This guy <laughs> had the book for eight months and hadn't turned in a script. Wow. And I was like, what's going on here? And, and finally he does. And I, the way it works, Bill, is you don't get the rights fee for, for the production until the first day of production. You only get an option. on the So the fee, which was a nice fee for the rights, I would not get unless they started production. So I told my wife, I don't care how bad the script is. I'm going to say it's good because I want them to make this movie. So they'll pay me the check. But the script was not only incredibly bad. It also was libelous because (laughs) it had stuff in it completely not in the book that he had made up. That was like like Letterman and Leno going to bars and getting drunk. Oh, that was I mean, neither guy drinks at all. <laughs> and I'm like, you can't, you can't do that. So, uh, so I told HBO, I, I it, it's not well. Before I did that, I sat and said maybe I could fix it, and I started to write a little bit, and I wrote like 40 pages in a day. Wow, and wow uh, of a script. I didn't, I didn't have a format. I didn't right. really. I just kind of moved the margins. Yeah. <laughs> so, and 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 they and I said to them, look, I don't think it's going to work. And they said, we don't either. It's awful. And I said, well, if you – I said, look, if you want another writer, I have an idea of how it should be done. And I sent this to them. And they said, Jesus, this is great. you you got to write this. Yeah. So I went to the Times and I said, you know, I'm not yeah. – f- can, can I do this? And they said, well, you're not writing about it anyway. So a, a very good editor, a friend of mine, I said, right. yeah, go ahead and do it. Yeah. So I was given yeah. clearance to right. do it from right. the Times. But, you know – the journalism purists in the crowd right. were upset with me for, for doing this, but they were mainly jealous. And yeah. what, what really got worse was that when the movie was made, uh, it, it was a very weird thing. H- HBO decided to try to get it in the previous tax year somehow. Like, so they ran this unbelievably unfinished version of it on December 31st at like 4 a.m. With really? no announcement. They
0: opened it out of town.
1: Yeah. Except it had leaked to two writers, Ed Bark, oh, and Dave B. Cooley. Oh my goodness! Both of whom were friends of mine. Right, Dave, based in New York, and, uh, uh, and Ed and in Dallas. Dallas. Right, hmm. and they just went did everything they could to destroy the movie. Really? Yeah. Oh my goodness! And they were friends of yours? Well, yeah. they weren't for a while. Well, right <laughs> after that. In fact, both guys have since apologized for that, yeah. but but the movie wasn 't finished it was a mess. it was not a real version right. of the movie i didn 't know that. and wow. it became a real hmm. sore spot i, I didn 't talk to either guy for years because yeah. it was a, it was really personal it 's like hmm. they wanted to destroy this thing and, it, and the movie wound up you know maybe not being great, but it was pretty well reviewed oh, and yeah. it got seven Emmy nominations yeah, so no, I, w- I felt like yeah. I felt pretty good about it in yeah. the end and Uh, so the whole thing was a crazy experience but sitting in that in that room you know HBO had asked me to be on the panel and I said to them it could be a little awkward you know they said well you can handle it I said all right and and just being attacked like that, I was like, "Well, this tells me a lot about the crowd here."
0: <laughs> it's a different room. It's a, it can be an ugly room. Uh, I remember getting in a car with you guys. There, there was a, a, a small group of you guys. The others were disdained, and they were, "Oh, those are the Mensa guys. Yeah. These are the brainiacs. <laughs> These are the elite." You know, and what and, the heck is wrong with that? I, by the right, right? No, as if it was a bad thing. Anyway, I, I, you were heading to the Beverly Hilton, probably. I needed a ride, and mm-hmm. so I got in the back seat with. And there was, I think, Marino Dowd was in the car. Like it was quite. Out, it so was yeah. a pretty cool ride <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I found my IQ rise.
1: It was fun <laughs> just from riding in the car. It was an amazing experience. Well, this happened Bill because when we first started covering TV, you had a lot of people who'd been like an old washed up sports writer that right, they right. kind of let write his end of his career reviewing these really bad television shows because it was the late 70s, early 80s and a lot most of the shows were terrible. Right. And so they weren't really taking it very seriously, and a few of us were like, "Well, we, we're covering it like a beat. We're going right. to talk about what's yeah. why the networks are making these decisions and stuff." So we would have these, you know, press conferences. We'd ask real questions, not yeah. like, well, "How hard was it to get so and so to star in that?" You know, yeah. uh, and they there was all this like resentment, like, okay, well, "You guys, what are you asking those questions for?" And, like, you know, the networks are getting upset with you, you know? right. and and it was like, "Well, we're journalists. We're trying to do mm-hmm. our jobs. Like, that's what we're, we're here for. we're paying." We're paying. Actually, our own newspapers are paying for us right. to be there. Initially, the networks paid for a lot of these people to go on the press oh, store. and, and so, you know the legendary uh,
0: T-shirts and hats and the etui yeah. uh, uh, cases full of cash. Sometimes, yeah. well, like
1: was, well, they would give them <laughs> envelopes full of cash. Yeah, wow. would, for their meals, amazing. They they got envelopes full of cash for the meals. There,
0: there literally were guys there who were there to grab three T-shirts or four, four not one. Like it was that kind of an experience.
1: Yes, as as very I famous story is a one person brought his brought his drapes right. to the hotel, have them cleaned right. Yes, <laughs> at the Century Plaza at the ne- in La- the Los Angeles expense. Yeah, so I never
0: thought of that. It was a long way from Canada. Had I owned drapes at the time, maybe yes, you know, who knows? I can't blame the guy for everything. You uh, could
1: have had like brought your pet and had it groomed,
0: maybe wow. or something. I, if I would have run out and got one. Um, and we talked about the TV beat, and it always seemed to me that this was the greatest job in journalism, because it's about everything, isn't it? It's, that. You know, it's about sports, it's about the weather, it's about politics and drama. You really, I remember being at, I worked at the Toronto Sun, and they were like, well, we want to make you a generalist. We want to take you off the TV beat so you can write. And I said, well, I already
1: do that. Why yep. would you do that? Is that how you felt? Totally. Yeah. When yeah. people would ask me, why why don't you change beats? Yeah. I'd be like, well, why would I? this is the best be? I get to write about everything. Yeah. I I mean, anything that was going on currently would be covered by TV, so you could write about that. Right, yeah. You know, it it was so... uh, To me, it was completely different from, like, covering football. If you covered football, you'd always do the same things. You'd do the draft, and then you'd do the season, and then you'd do the Super Bowl. Every year, same, same thing. Television not only were there are all these things to cover, but it changed hugely from the time I started. It was like totally different 10 years later. And then 10 years later, something else happened that shook it up. So So there was always change. And you went
0: through the explosion in cable and now uh, streaming, of course. Yes. Um, But no one starts out as a TV writer. What was your first job at Baltimore? Well, I was, uh,
1: I got out of school and uh, Notre Dame. Yes. And I, and I had, didn't have a job. And, um, no one would hire me because I had a very low draft number. Oh, right—the worry that they'd lose you right away. Yes, so I, I was due to be drafted, and I was trying to figure out how to beat this.
0: This is the Vietnam War. Yes, which is right still at raging. the end of the Vietnam yeah. War,
1: mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out how I'm not going to get drafted. And I try—I went. You, you try to find a doctor who would write you something physically wrong with you, like Trump with his crazy—oh, uh, his uh, feet, bone it? spurs right. and his heels. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, but, um, I didn't really have any big physical <laughs> ailments <laughs> yet. Yeah. I had a thing with my knee that I thought I had played football. I thought maybe they'll, and a the doctor, you, you would find like an anti-war doctor. Right. And, and really? Yeah. He, wow. They would, their names would be passed around. So I found this guy and he, he examined me and said, look, I'm going to, I'll write you a letter about this. It won't work. I'm telling you now not going to work right but i'll do it wow so i'm like uh i can't count on this so um, i went off to research what the heck else and you know i'm not very tall and i particularly then was very skinny Mm. and i thought what if there's like a weight at which you can't be drafted right like what if this you can be like too light yeah i'm sure you can be too fat or maybe you can't be too fat they'll work that off you well but but so i go to the library and i find a book and darn it there is there's there are standards yeah. for, for weight so i find the height and weight and i'm like and it was some crazy weight like 118 pounds yeah and i weighed 132 pounds wow right something like that but i thought I, I can do this so you starved yourself so i started to not to not eat and i and in the meantime i didn't know what else to do so i called up graduate schools in journalism and and i i got to penn state and because i 'd seen a flyer on the wall they had a journalism school. Mm. And and they they had already finished admitting their class, and I said, you know, I'm sort of interested in. Well, you know, we we kind of too late. It's kind of too late, and Mm. and and I and and I said, well, okay. He said, well, what 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 are your grades like? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm. I have pretty high grades. Pretty good, yeah. <laughs> and they were like, uh, "Okay, well, did you take the GREs?" And I said, "Yeah, I did." And I told them that, and I said, "We'll take you." Great, because they don't have a great school. They don't. Penn State. Yeah, they don't. They're, maybe they do now, but it was. I thought. I thought it was a joke. I mean, I was working on the high school, on the college paper. Mm. I was the managing editor. That's where you learn journalism. You don't go to school for it. I mean, right. I went to classes on how to be a reporter. I'd just done that. I right. didn't need to class for that. Editorial writing, I was like sounding off. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. I
0: never went to journalism school so, so
1: all I did was I took the journal. They, – they, you're supposed to do four quartermesters to get a degree. I said, I'm going to do it in three. And they were like, oh, no. you'll." Ne-. I said, I yeah. think I could do it in three. <laughs> and then I took all these, uh, I was an English major, all these English uh, yeah. courses in, the, in their master's program because I wanted something stimulating. Mm. But in the middle of that, I, the Baltimore Sun came looking for uh, copy editors. The copy desk chief came by, and he was actually trying to hire someone of color mm. um but while he was there, someone else dropped out, and he asked his advi. He'd gone to Penn State. His advisor or someone else you recommend? He said you should look at this kid. Oh, wow! And and they gave you a test for like trivia, general knowledge stuff, which was made up by his boss, who had gone to a Jesuit high school as I did, and right. it was like Latin and stuff. And and like I killed on this yeah, test okay. because it was like it was like made up for me. Anyway, so they hired me, and uh, I went to be the copy editor, a copy desk person, and. Of course, I wanted to be a writer, so I'm there on the copy desk for a while, and I was there six months, n- maybe even less, uh, and they had this crazy guy who was the foreign editor, international editor, who was impossible to deal with, and and he, his deputy kept getting fired or l- mm. leaving because mm. the guy was crazy, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they kept saying, "Oh, well, let's have somebody from the copy desk work with him this week. And I, So they put me in there yeah. one week. And uh, I got along with the guy because mm. I get along with basically anybody. And I right. sort of could read him, you know. And so he kept keeping me week after week after week. And finally, he said, well, I want this kid to be the deputy foreign editor. I was 22. Wow. And uh, wow. and the, and the paper was... Did travel? Was this a... No. 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 <laughs> he did the travel. Oh, okay. But I would be there talking to like the, you know, the Paris correspondent on the phone about... <laughs> the Paris peace talks stuff, yeah. like that. and and they and I would have to say to them, no, you know, I have to make a decision like that. You can't do that. You have to do this, and they'd call them say, "What is that kid doing?" <laughs> Funny, <laughs> but I was I was fast tracked to be like a top editor there, and and when the TV critic job came open, yeah. I I said I want that because I wanted to write, yeah. and and uh, I like TV, and they were like, "What are you? You're nuts! You're you're, you're on a management," yeah. and I was yeah. like, "I I." I this is what I want to do. I want to do that, and they're like, "Well, you know, you're not going to pay you the same." And I said, "I don't care. I want this." So I t- that's, that's how I took it. Do you remember the first TV
0: interview you did for the paper?
1: Yes. What was that? Q O'Brien. Hugh O'Brien.
0: <laughs> Hugh O'Brien from uh, Wyatt Earp, or what was he? Wyatt? Earp, yeah, yeah. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Wow. And they they have the O'Brien School. Uh, like there's a he, he, place where kids can go to uh, learn to be a leader in their community. Yeah. Right. And he, yeah. which he formed after meeting. Uh, who was the humanitarian who was in Africa? Um, the, the great, Livingston. Yeah, or, yeah one yeah, of those. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I have a long story about that. We'll do the next time you're here.
1: But anyway, so yeah, you, O'Brien, <laughs> for some reason came came to Baltimore. I forget what he was doing yeah. at some dinner theater or something.
0: Wow. My first one, I was at TV Guide Canada, and I was really photo editor, and I was starting to write, and it was uh, the voice of Donald Duck, Clarence Nash, oh. who was 86. Clarence Ducky Nash. Clarence Ducky Nash, yes. <laughs> Well, that's that guy very good. That's what I so <laughs> they go. Wait, we'll, we'll put him on the phone one minute, Mister Brio, and then that voice going. Hello, Bill, I can't do it. Yeah, hello, Bill. And and I thought, was well, that's adorable. This is really kind yeah. of
1: cool. But um, then you realize that he kept doing. He, it. he he wanted to do it as Donald. Yes, and uh, I said,
0: and I eventually, you know, uh, uh, Donald. It's it's such a pleasure. Is Clarence around? <laughs> <laughs> do you mind if we put Clarence on the phone? <laughs> Finally, he came on the phone. But uh, that I thought, oh my goodness. What have I gotten into here, but that sounds like fun. To it me. was darn good fun, and then the second guy was uh the, uh, the the Hal Roach. Bullwinkle. Ha- no, no. <laughs> that wasn't that like Bill Scott, who did Bullwinkle. I would have loved to talk to <laughs> But it was Hal Roach, who... Uh, oh, my God. The f- the original uh, producer of the, the Laurel Star Hardy Cops films. And, yeah. yeah. And he t- said to me, because I was calling him about colorization. It was at the right. end in the 80s. Yes. There was a Toronto company. He was alive in the 80s. He was 95. Wow. And I mm. thought i would going to have to sh- shout. And he's telling me, stop shouting. He was totally with it. <laughs> And uh, I, I was asking him about colorizing Laurel and Hardy's. Toronto Firm was doing that. Yeah. They had the rights. And I, and he, I said, do, do, you, um, do you think that they're, um, you know, what do you think about this process? And he goes, well, let me ask you something. You, you know the funnies, don't you? And I said, yeah, the comic strips that mm-hmm. are in the daily paper. And back then, um, you know, they were black and white. On well, the weekdays. And then color. Color on, on the weekends. So he said, you know how they're in that color. And he goes, so do you only laugh on the weekends and, yeah. and, you know, like his point was brilliant. It doesn't have to be color. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, this is going to be fun. Like mm-hmm. the, the, you actually hear people say really smart things. And, uh, and yeah. I, even I can't screw Not up. always, Bill. No. Well, there's <laughs> – I am sort of putting
1: it on yep. a, a better gl- – gl- But but your, your point is that you get to talk to so many different people. Yeah, yeah. And, and – you know, the range of people from the dull to the fascinating is is amazing. It's pretty cool. Um, Now, uh,
0: speaking of fascinating, um, I I want to ask a bit about Johnny Carson. Yeah. Imagine, was his the first late night show, The Tonight Show, that you remember? Do you remember watching?
1: I I do, I of course, remember Carson. Yeah. My dad was a huge television fan. Huge. Okay. Um, And he was a big Steve Allen fan. Wow. Now, I saw Steve Allen... But I don't think I saw him on The Tonight Show. I saw him...
0: The primetime show? His
1: primetime show. And then he continued to do syndicated late-night shows. So he was the late-night host, I would sort of say I saw. But I also... He was also a huge fan of Ernie Kovacs, who briefly did The Tonight Show. So I saw him, too. I don't remember seeing Parr... Mm. you know because i don't think he was a par fan i think he watched it but he wasn't like a par fan and i wasn't up that late except for a weird circumstance you were a youngster and and so you wouldn't you'd have to stay up quite late and that didn't happen did it no
0: Um, (laughs) my my memory of the night show was that when you were able you're old enough to finally watch it you felt like an adult like it was kind of uh, yeah getting able to stay up late and listen to the adults talking kind of thing yeah
1: um but you knew from from i mean I, I, of course, wasn't reading the press about TV in those days. Mm. But you just knew that Car- Carson was a massive star. Yeah, You just, you just through the cultural osmosis, you right. heard so much about him yeah. that you knew he was a big star. And, of course, the show was not in New York. It was done in New York City in right. all those early years. First of, ten Car- years or so, yeah. For, of Carson, yeah. yeah. Um, do you think he'd be the king of late night today? Yeah, I would. And why do you feel that way? Because he had, he was... He was a master of the format. You have to really go back early to, to see it. Because later on, I remember when I was writing The Late Shift and it was his last days. I think it was Lorne Michaels who said, you know, that Carson's a, a genius, but that show's got mothballs all over it. <laughs> <You> <laughs> what know? a great line. Be- because it was yeah. tired. It's true. You know? um, this is Lorne Michaels? I'm not sure. I, I, I was going to say somebody the man said who's that. running a show well, in his 45th season. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, Carson. Carson was unique in the sense that he was a really gifted comic. Mm-hmm. I mean, really gifted comic. But his personality was just exactly right. He just had this kind of naughty but charming yeah. style to him. And Paul Reiser told a story. Okay, so Paul Reiser comes on a young, as a young comic. And he, he's booked and he does his first bit. But then Car- Carson likes his desk work. Right, So he said mainly then he was just booked as a guest because he would do bits. And Johnny wanted you to be ready and prepared. Right. But he wouldn't necessarily know what you're going to do because mm-hmm. he wanted to be spontaneous. And so he said he, he's telling a story, and he's telling a story about <clears throat> how he, he, there are people who just touch you, reach out. And, t- and it's like, what is with this person? <laughs> <laughs> right. When they're talking, they just reach out and right? Touch, yeah, right? Yeah. And you know, everybody yeah. knows yeah. those people. Yeah. And, and 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 he's getting to the gist of the story, right? And in the story, he he real he's Johnny is laughing and he's like rocking back and smoking right. which he would do all the time. On air, and Riser realizes that his finish he has to touch Johnny like to pay it off. Yeah, he's got he's got to be that's the joke right, kind of right, that right, he right. actually reached out and touches yeah. Johnny. So, but he but he's like, you know, how am I going to steer him to do this? And he's and Johnny's laughing. And then he sees Johnny, it crossed Johnny's eyes, and he says, Johnny makes a gesture so it's not obvious, but he puts his arm right there for it. Yeah. Like he knows. He just knew that's what he's going for. He was the best setup man he, he, ever, man. Yeah. And two other guys who we talked to about Carson told stories about how they, after they finished their stand up, which Johnny liked, mm-hmm. Johnny liked very much, he gave them, he said, but a better tag would be this. Like, and he gave them an improvement on their joke. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah.
0: So June came early this year, as in June, played by Elizabeth Moss, who returns for the fourth season of The Handmaid's Tale. That's right. She's no longer a handmaid and no longer answers to the name Offred. June is strictly out for vengeance as she leads the rebellion against the state of Gilead. Season four picks up where season three left off as June and a squad of Marthas smuggle almost 100 children to safety in Canada. It's a good thing this series is produced in and around Toronto. It hasn't been easy, however. June's been shot and injured, and her quest for justice threatens to destroy her most cherished relationships. Showrunner Bruce Miller says that this season, we weren't waiting around. It was time for shit to happen. The series returns Wednesday, April 28th with back to back episodes, as always, and it can also be streamed on Crave. That's season four of The Handmaid's Tale. Get into it on CTV Drama. We're back now with Bill Carter. Conan O'Brien has this podcast now. We were talking about uh, Conan needs a friend. And and Letterman was talking to him on the latest one that I've heard. And uh, he told this story about uh, Bob Hope and uh, Carson and how uh Hope was uh, an elderly gentleman at, yes. toward the end. And, you know, da, 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 he would come out to, no, not that theme, but to to the, thanks to the, for the da, memories. Da, 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 right, right, right. Da, 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 yeah, and, and he would just sort of, was the only guy like, who could just sort of walk in the middle of a, an interview and walk on, and the audience would all stand yeah. and, and go crazy. And his very last appearance was that week when everybody was going on to Carson, the very final week of the shows. And he brought a gift, literally in a box, wrapped, mm-hmm. to give to Carson as he walked out. And Carson knew enough not to open it on air. He just, oh, thank you, he put it aside. And he opened it later. It was a re- re-gifted VCR. <laughs> 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 uh, this is a man who owns half of California like, yep. at this point, right? The yeah. like, uh, biggest real estate guy. Anyway, uh, it's uh, worth Ho- a listen. Hope was, was not a favored guest. No, that's what I understand, yeah. because
1: Carson... Got kind of sick of him uh, yeah. and, and felt... He was a big NBC figure, so you had to book him. Right. But he didn't think he was particularly useful at no. the end there. so be,
0: because he would say, uh, you know, the uh, Carson or Letterman would would, would ask, uh, well, you were just overseas. What was it like in Vietnam? And he'd yeah. go, oh, I got to tell you, that was big. <laughs> that would be about it.
1: Yeah. You know? I remember interviewing Hope toward the end of his career he would do phoners all the time. He was old-fashioned. Like his publicist would say, do these some in Baltimore. What does he care really about Baltimore? But he would get on the phone with this fucking kid in Baltimore. And I would always try to get him to talk about like, you know, entertaining the troops during the war. And I want to talk about my special. You know, I want to talk about... It was really hard to get the interesting stuff out of him
0: yeah interesting Uh, well uh, and and Carson if you could interview him today which I'm sure you would love to do what would you
1: ask well I'd ask what he thinks of the guys now yeah I think he would have an interesting take yeah Um, when I I I needed him for the late shift I really needed to get him yeah because he was he had an an interesting role Um, and Dave had told me some stuff Right, and I and I again, I need the other side. Right, I need to get his. Right. But Johnny had really pushed away being in the middle of Leno and Letterman. He did not want to do that. He was very, very good friends with Bob Wright. They used to vacation together. Right, and he at NBC. He, yeah, he, he, Bob Wright was the head of NBC. Yeah, and he did not want to get in the middle of that. So he, he was very reluctant. So I so I met his um, his lawyer. And his lawyer Bumbastic? was not bombastic Bushkin. <laughs> Bushkin had long been in because Johnny had this massive massive falling yeah. out with him. This was Ed the Hook Hookstratton. <laughs> <laughs> and Hook met me for lunch at the, at the grill where Johnny, at Johnny 's table, yeah. and he was very. Hook wanted; he sort of wanted to be in, involved in the book a little bit. He, yeah, like he, yeah. but he couldn't deliver Johnny. He, he oh. you know, he was like, you know, I don't know if he's going to do it, but you know. And we met a couple of times, and I finally said, you know, what if I send him uh, some questions? Uh, you know, at least write them out. Maybe he'll answer them. And he said, yeah, th- let's do that. Right. Maybe he'll that don't count on it. Right. But he said, you know, but I'm thinking at least I'll get some. I want to talk to him, but I sort of interviewed him. Mm. So I I make these questions out, and, and, and Dave had told me this incredible story about how bushkin had come to him in the dave was very early in his explosively successful career at nbc and said to him you know uh dave um johnny loves you and and all this um we want to sign you for to carson productions so that you get the tonight show when johnny leaves and dave that's what dave really wanted of course but dave's like does, does Johnny know you're here? Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and wisely. he's like, well, you know, I'm running it. You don't have to worry about Johnny. You wow. And Dave's like, oh, this is a fire. I don't want to get near. Like Good for him. So he says, well, you know You can talk to my manager. And then he says, don't let that guy in again. <laughs> like he says. Wow. No. So so I write this in my questions to Johnny. Did you know that Bushkin once went to Letterman and pitched being your successor, blah, right. blah, blah. So I, I send it to to uh, Hookstrat and Hookstrat, you know, don't anticipate hearing from this for a long time. Whatever. Right. The next day, I'm home. It's a Friday afternoon. My phone rings. My personal home phone rings. Ah, uh, this is Johnny Carson. Jeez. <laughs> and I'm like, Wow, whoa, <laughs> wow. And he's like, You got to tell me this Bushkin story. Wow. And I'm like. Happily. Happy to tell you this. So Johnny. that's how you get to Carson. So I guess so, and then I'm then yeah. I need the I need him to give me his side of the conversation when he tells Dave mm. don't take don't hang around for NBC's half assed offer. If I were you, I'd go to CBS. Wow. And John David told me that, but I had to hear Johnny's side. Right. F- to write it the yeah. way and uh, he told me. What a great so, story. W- so so was yeah. I remember because my wife is downstairs. And, the pho- and I'm upstairs in my office, and and, the, and and I'm on the phone. It wasn't long, maybe 40 minutes, 30, 40 minutes. And he answered a bunch of other stuff, mm. but he wouldn't go to his opinions, but, which was fine. Mm. But, I mean, I, I was... So I hung up the phone, and I just yelled, yes! <laughs> <laughs> and she comes to the bottom of the stairs, and she says, that was Johnny Carson, right? Wow. Oh, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> well, uh, what an amazing. Um, I, I, again, I was a young guy in L.A. Uh, TV Guide Canada had sent me there for a couple of years, so mid-'80s. And I was asked to, you know, try and talk to Johnny Carson, oh, yeah. which is hilarious. And so I, Bill Barron was the publicist at Mahoney Wasserman, was <laughs> okay. was the publicity house. And I called up, green is grass, and um, he said, okay, kid, uh, why don't you meet me for lunch at wherever, yeah. El Mama's Maison, or whatever yeah. it was. And he was hilarious. He was just like, oh, my God, you made my day. It was the funniest <laughs> thing. I laughed and laughed and laughed. Nobody does that, but lovely to meet you and say hi to Canada, you know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Lovely man. Uh, We did manage to get a photographer, a good friend, Gene, who became a good friend, Gene Trindle was a TV Guide photographer, and he was able to go in the audience with a bellows and shoot Carson doing his monologue so we could have a cover shot, Mm -hmm. and then we probably picked up a story by Dwight Whitney or somebody at the TV Guide US. Yes. Wow. So you never
1: talk to him is what you're talking about?
0: no, 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 no.
1: Well, he once in a while would do an event where some bunch of us, a bunch of the press would be at. Not too often. Yeah. But he would, he, and of course the book opens with him coming to the, to the upfront in 1992, 91, I guess it was. And, and, and now, and, and Warren Littlefield has just taken over and it's his first thing and Johnny says, I'll come and I'll entertain. I'll do some entertaining. And, are you kidding? It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's the he's the end of the show. He's here's Johnny. Johnny comes out, he tells some jokes and you know, and the people love him, and then he says, you know, as, as you all know, this is gonna be my last year and blah blah blah. And like He just dropped the bomb. He drops the bomb and I'm sitting in the audience and I'm like, Did he just say that? Yeah did he just? and I'm like, didn't I'm looking at did NBC is there a paper that NBC right. has this been announced? What yeah, yeah. And, and, and and as it ends the thing you knew that it was like dropped on enemies because they go running, they're like scurrying, like whoa, right, right, and they don't have a press, release. they have nothing. He just drops it in their lap like wow. that.
0: That story's in uh, the War for Late. Night. No, that's it, in that's, the Late Shift. Oh, the Late
1: Shift. Yeah. Oh, my God, okay, yeah. yeah, good read. That opens the Late Shift, right? Because that's right, because that's what started the whole. You're right. Thing going. Should
0: have remembered. Um, do you think Carson? What would his take be on? Um, Colbert, do you think? Because here's a guy who has become a big success by, by literally going after Donald Trump. That yeah. he's, he's staked that high ground, and, and it's something you never knew where Carson was voting. He never really, you might have guessed, but he didn't uh, do something like that. He didn't turn his show into a forum no. for a cause. What do you think he would think of Colbert?
1: Well, I, I, I'm sure he would think too overt political opinion is wrong. It's not good comedy. But maybe he would say the era demands it. He yeah, might. Yeah. He might say that now. Um, he, I think he would say the guy is remarkable. For a guy who wasn't a stand-up, because his opening monologue is often insanely funny. Yeah. And, and he's clearly a gifted, gifted performer. Yeah. Johnny's view, though, was not just that you show don't show your political opinions. It's that you don't play to New York and L.A. You play to the basically you play to the central time zone because. If you really are big in Cincinnati and I mean in Chicago and St. Louis and Dallas and all that, your your ratings are probably going to be better. It's ten thirty there. Right. It's not eleven thirty there. That's true. It's ten thirty there. Of, yeah. And so you, you you have that advantage, and you, you're not just a coastal phenomenon then. Right. So he's 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 in New York when he starts. He's kind of a New York creature, mm-hmm. but. His, his heart is Nebraska. Mm. So he understands, he understood the middle of the country and and he got them all because of that. He got everybody.
0: But you might think then that Colbert would be the coastal phenomena and that Fallon would have the rest of the country and yet their ratings have flipped dramatically in the last three or yeah. four
1: years. Well, you know, it's, it's shrunk so much. Mm. The total number of views, I mean, even Letterman and Leno back when they started getting get like six million viewers a night and now I think if you get Three and a half. Oh yeah, you're you're winning. Yeah. Um, last week I saw that uh, Colbert had Hillary Clinton on, so he got a big number. He got a bigger number. He got three point nine million, mm. and and uh, Fallon had one point nine million. Wow, one point nine million. Fallon won the demo though. Still, He'd, still because of CBS's older audience. But I, it's just you can't really say this anymore because people are watching. A lot of young people right. are picking it up the next day. So you can't really gauge the popularity of these right. shows now by looking at those numbers. Right. I think Carson would, because he was a very shrewd cultural guy, until, until sort of the end when uh, <laughs> when he felt like uh, people were... He There was one episode, uh, incident where I guess it was Arsenio came on, and he kind of was the guy that made Carson look a bit old. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and and he comes on, he says to Ed, "So you know what they're saying about us, Ed? They're saying we're old farts. That's what they're saying. (laughs) That's what he said. Yeah, wow. Um, So uh, you know, did Ed say (laughs) you are correct, sir? (laughs) (laughs) No, just ho ho. But he, well, when he was young and hip and and with it, it, that guy would I think say. You know, I, I got to make sure I'm big online. Yeah. You know, I got I, I to have that. I got to have yeah. that
0: audience. Now, if you've been watching Hollywood Suite lately, you've probably been enjoying Staged, the innovative virtual rehearsal drama from England starring David Tennant and Michael Sheehan. So you're probably wondering, what does Hollywood Suite have lined up for May? Well, for one thing, they've got Luke Evans. You've seen him on the Fast and Furious movies, playing a relentless investigator in the true crime drama The Pembrokeshire Murders. This three-part drama tells the story of newly promoted detective superintendent Stephen Wilkins, played by Evans, who decides to reopen two unsolved cold cases. These are murders committed back in the 1980s. Could they be tied to a string of burglaries? Wilkins and his team apply the latest forensic methods. Results point the finger at a suspect already in police custody. But the team has to act fast as his release date looms. The series was a smash when it premiered in the UK on ITV. And Hollywood Suite president David Kine says this gripping series will not disappoint Canadians either. That's The Pembrokeshire Murders, premiering May 20th exclusively in Canada on Hollywood Suite. All right. Once again, we're back talking to Bill Carter, all about late night television. Do you watch? Do you still watch late night in late night, or are you like a lot of us, just getting those five? Yeah, I don't it? watch
1: it as much as I did for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a period of time, particularly when it was Letterman, Leno, at eleven thirty, and Kimmel at twelve, mm-hmm. and John Stewart at eleven. Right. Right. Jon Stewart would start at 11. You could watch all the daily show yeah. and then watch the first five minutes of the Colbert Report before Letterman and Leno came on at 1135. Right. So you could see one, two, and then you go back and forth between Johnny and Dave. They're on the same time. And then at midnight, switch to Kimmel. Right. And you'd see five shows. You could see mm-hmm. at least the open of five shows. Yeah. That was, f- I loved doing that. I loved jumping around and yeah. watching that. Getting the- um getting now it's it's you if there's something funny you're going to hear about it. you're going to see it the next day so reliably. Mm-hmm. Now if there's something going on I want to see it. I want to see what Colbert does or you know Seth Meyers is also great with his political commentary really and of course Jimmy Kimmel's a great friend of mine and I Yeah want to maintain stuff with him if he, especially he'll alert me if something yeah. is interesting so he
0: was uh goofing on dildo newfoundland yes here. all of canada was into that one for a little while yes He's a, uh, kimmel's a great great guy um now uh talk a little bit about david letterman and you and i know there's a, a gentleman peter la yes who um <clears throat> actually started at nbc as a page or something in the 50s but he went on to be a producer for carson and uh, david letterman and even uh, later craig ferguson yep. um i i saw him once at a tca awards night we had a great chat i asked him about letterman and he said to me that there's only one other person in show business who is and i'm paraphrasing here he didn't use these words but more screwed up than letterman and that's steve martin yeah you know that they were awkward folks at a home situation when you yeah. got them out of that hour on their show um now is that an exaggeration or is that what you've encountered
1: well i don't know steve right. uh particularly well i know he has a reputation for being awkward yeah um and chilly hmm. uh but he's very funny <laughs> he's a very talented Damn guy funny. Yeah. um he and, and uh, martin short their show is really, really yeah ridiculous. they yeah, yeah. they're yeah. and martin of course is a much more outgoing fellow one of the best guests on yeah. that late night yeah. talk show right so but dave is an unusual guy i mm. mean he he is pathologically it's a word it, i guess shy is wrong but he's socially awkward he, mm. he on the air he's such a gregarious guy and he yeah. you know he's in command yeah boy is he in command but off the air like he would just not want to interact with people. like you, You'd occasionally see him say it on the air like Regis would come on and say, come on, you and I will go to dinner. Or so. And he's like, Regis, I don't go to dinner. <laughs> like, I don't go out. That was genuine. And it was 100% yeah. genuine. Mm. When, when Tom Brokaw had his last time at NBC, there was a, an event for him mm. at the some museum in New York. And I went. Mm. And, and I, I, I was over there. And I'm standing watching. And Conan comes up to me. And says, "Dave's here. Can you believe it? Dave is here." And and, and he was shocked because he was out in public and a thing. So I I was actually with Maureen Dowd that that afternoon because mm-hmm. she was a, a, a frequent guest. Uh, she was a friend of Brokaw. So she said, "Let's go say hi to Dave." Mm-hmm. And I said, "All right." <laughs> so so we go and I'm like he's not going to particularly be warm but okay mm. so we go over he says hello to me he's not warm or cold he just says hello to me mm. but his wife is there right mm. regina mm. and i and i don't know she, he was then talking to conan or maureen Dowd or somebody but i said to regina so uh you, you came out to this event said, I, I said i'm a little surprised to, to see you guys yeah. i have to admit it and she says, you're surprised <laughs> <laughs> this, is the, this is the first time we've been out at an event in eight years really Oh, my God. So so he – you can't believe how different yeah. – and he would occasionally say it on the internet. It was absolutely true. He's just awkward yeah. in, in social situations. And he has, you know, demons. He's got real demons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I talked to Meryl Marco, his first longtime girlfriend and, mm-hmm. and incredibly creative yeah. head writer who came up with so many of his bits. A lot of those bits, like stupid pet tricks and top her, ten lists. yeah, It's well, all her. Hmm. And you know she had a bad experience with him in the end, but yeah. she understands him incredibly well, mm-hmm. and and she would say, you know, like he was he was a guy who, you know, you could do you could present him with the most tremendous material in the world, and he'd say, not good enough. No, okay, I'm going to get killed out there. It's awful. It's terrible. And 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 she's the head writer, and she's like, and also his girlfriend, and she's like, he's going to have to do something, and he would pick one. He's well, I got. I, we can't have dead air, so I guess I'll do this. And she'd be like in the wings, and he'd go out to perform, and, and she'd be like petrified. He's going to bomb. It's going to be a disaster, and, and it's going to be all my fault. And you know, and he would kill. Mm. He would kill, and the last would wash over him. Yeah. And 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 he, you know, out there, and, and I said, well, then, then, thank goodness you could relax. He said, relax. All I could think was, I got to do this again tomorrow. <laughs> 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 wow. Um,
0: and why do you think it is? I think to me, you know, I grew up with Letterman. He, he uh, molded my comedy sensibility in a lot of ways. He was ironic. He was, mm-hmm. uh, and, but did we just love him because he was, we suspected that he was <laughs> a little no. bit messed
1: up or is just because he was a great No, performer? I think most of the people who were fans of his, young guy, young mm. college guys, thought this is the coolest guy in America. Right. Mm. And he is so sharp and fu- and he doesn't, brook fools at all right right yeah and he's not showbiz like johnny you know he's kind of right. like he hates he's really hates that phony showbiz stuff yeah no i'm sure most people thought that 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 it was completely real um and as a performer it was i mean you know when he was performing he became a different guy mm-hmm. but like a lot of these guys bill it's very interesting a lot of them have had screwed up childhoods in some fashion right and um, dave's father died when he was quite young yeah and his mother, he would always say on the air, my mother, who's the least demonstrative person on the planet, like right, her, right. she was. She was very distant and cold. Right. And Carson's mother was unbelievable. Right. Carson's mother would always say, well, why are you still doing this job? You're not funny. Right. You know. And yeah. it, there was a Time Magazine piece, a cover story, and they sat with his mother to watch a show one night. And she's watching saying, why are people laughing? He isn't funny, and and and, and he was ba- And and Leno's mother, same way, very standoffish, cold, not warm yeah. person. Thought his brother was God's gift, to everything, and he was, and he was a flunky and a failure. But is it
0: true that after she died, Carson's cleaning out her house, and there's a box of clippings, and she had kept almost all every yeah. clipping, and she really was very proud of him. She just never she would couldn't tell him. express it, yeah. and it
1: killed him. Yeah, it killed him. Mm. And you know, and then you got John Stewart's father abandoned the family when he was young mm. and of course colbert's father was killed in a plane crash wow. when he was 12 years old so there's a lot of this and it, it i don't know why it keeps cropping up this way thank god our friend jimmy kimmel doesn't have well,
0: that. Th- that well i was getting to that um and, and just in uh, one other note uh, again that same conversation with la i asked him what's the through line with yep. these three guys that you work for and he said their mothers mother issues yeah yeah there you go which Mm -hmm. you know i I was expecting him to say well they were from the midwest (laughs) you know like i did that a lot i nearly fell down yeah um kimmel as you and i have experienced is just a warm uh friendly guy a real neighborly kind of guy and loves
1: his family takes care of his everybody his family has a
0: job and yeah yes yes um You know, there would be press tours again, and all of there would be like 60 people in a scrum. And at the end of it, there would be you and I and Neil Justin from the Minneapolis Star Tribune. And I remember Kimmel looking at us and going, well, here we are, the high school reunion again, right? Uh, he, he just could not uh, be more the oh, of the salt of the earth. Oh, he had us to dinner. Yeah, which was were... a remarkable... Yeah. How often has that happened to you? Not, not right. often. Right. Not often. Yeah. No, very fortunate. But he's a lovely, lovely guy. And, and, and you know, so uh, he clearly has a great family uh, base to, to be yes. uh, uh, that way.
1: Um, but, but you know what? He loved Dave. He was crazy about yes. Dave. Yeah, yeah. You know, when he was a kid, yeah. his mother made him his birthday cake with the late night symbol in it, and he had a... You know, his first car had <laughs> really? late night as his last license plate really? and i mean he was great him and conan crazy crazy fans of dave
0: yeah wow interesting um uh and um you know, uh, some of the other uh, players, and I'm sure this is going to be part of your documentary. But which of the other folks that you're looking at who had late night shows uh, over this span? Like, uh, do you go drill down as far as uh, Craig
1: Ferguson or? We we deal with everybody. We have to de- We we didn't go in depth except for the bigger ones. George Lopez. So we talked to George Lopez because because we needed to get. It's all white guys. Right. You know, it's right. a regular white guy thing. Yes. Arsenio didn't want to talk to me. Really? And it was weird because I had interviewed him a couple of times, but he said he wanted to do his own documentary or something. Oh. And I was like, you're nuts, man. This is good exposure yeah, for you. Yeah. Yeah. But we talked to a lot of the people around Arsenio. Um, you know, and it, it, we talked to Joan Rivers' daughter. Oh, right? Melissa? Melissa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that whole saga is very interesting, yeah, too, no because kidding. of her being close to Johnny and... That blow up and and Lasalle was Peter Lasalle was really very friendly with Joan Rivers. Wow, I mean he and his wife and Joan and her husband used to vacation. They were really close. Wow, and then this blow up happened and Peter was like, I can't talk to you. Wow, Johnny is you are done. Wow, you know so that was a, that episode is quite interesting yeah. in, in in late night history. But you know we I. I one of the interesting things is that there's, there's this very limited premise, uh, presence of women yeah. in late night, except behind the scenes. Yeah, because behind the scenes, all the producers, you start them. with Meryl Marco, yeah. who's a huge, gigantic figure, yeah. and you have Debbie Vickers, who's the person that helped uh, save Jay Leno. Right? Yeah. It's all women with uh, with Letterman, Barbara Gaines, yeah. and Jude Brennan. You you have. Uh Jill Laterman does uh, Kimmel's show. Yeah. It, the, and women are very important in the production side. What do you make of that? I guess people would say they didn't have their mothers or not? is that anything? interesting? I don't know. Yeah. No, it's it's fascinating.
0: I never even thought of it that way. But you're right. They were all the women behind the guys. Yeah. Have you seen – we have a young Canadian now, Lily Singh. She's from Toronto. And yes. She's just, just started yes. on Late
1: Late in the NBC. We tried to use her – she hadn't been she wasn't on the air yet so she right. didn't want to stick her neck out and do it i guess um, but she was a youtube phenomenon yes, right. um, first and and, it's, and and she's a she's doubly interesting as a person of color and yeah. a woman yeah so i'd like to see, but you know at least now it has broken down to the point where you don't have to have this gigantic audience so you can have a guy like Hassan Minaj doing a show right, right? Yeah. you would not have seen him no. probably on one of the pretty, major pretty, networks. Pretty good show, too. And he's, yeah. he's a v- yeah. very bright guy. Yeah. Very, very bright guy. Um, uh, you tr- also have this crazy presence of British people.
0: What, is what the hell is that? John Oliver.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, Corden.
0: Craig Ferguson Craig was Ferguson. Scotland, of course. Yeah. Um, and James Corden. So, so why is it easier for Americans to swallow when it's a foreign guy telling them that, that Trump is an idiot? No, <laughs> I, I don't think so. <laughs> you
1: know. At this point, I think everybody's telling them that <laughs> across the board but i but americans have always been kind of impressed with the british accent oh, like they like they think it makes you a little smarter, bit smarter right, sounding yeah, and yeah. so i think that's part of it but also they don't really have this format in england it's never worked it's never bill it's never worked anywhere else really right that's true and, well, it's never worked in canada well and yeah. people always ask me that mm. cuz i've said one of the things this is a, an american phenomenon Yeah. big time american phenomenon and there are funny people in every country. Mm. But what there isn't in every country is an unlimited number of celebrities. Right. Only in America That's could true. you book these
0: shows. That's true. But Bill, you have told me a very funny story about meeting the, I think it's the German
1: David Letterman. I did, yes. Could you talk a bit about yes. that experience? He was um, Harold Schmidt is his name. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and uh, I was doing... The, for for uh, a crazy reason, I was in Germany, and at that at this point, the Berlin Wall had come down. Everything, but they hadn't shifted all the business, everything back to Berlin. So the TV business had grown up in Cologne, oh, okay, G- Germany. That's where when they couldn't use Berlin, okay, <laughs> they used Cologne. So most of the, so I was would in, have been West German town at yeah, that point. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Cologne is very close to Switzerland. I okay. guess mm-hmm. it's on the Rhine. So. Okay. Um, so And it's close to Bonn, which was the capital right. at the time. So they, they have me over, and pff, I'm, I, this is like maybe three, four years after the late shift comes out. And every person I run into in German television knows the book. Right. And I was like, what? This is... One big German executive, TV executive, had been coming back from New York, and he picked up the book in the airport and read it on the plane going back, and he ordered cases of it wow. and gave it to all his employees. Wow! He said, "You want to see how American television works? This is how it works. Yeah. Read this." So I had all these people saying, "Oh, you wrote the and I'm like, I can't, "I'm amazed. This is amazing to me." Right. So one night in Germany, they they copy American shows like literally. Right? They had a Nightline. Right? They had they used the same title even. They they changed the t- title occasionally, but they and they had a Saturday Night Live. Das Nightline. Right? Maybe. They and they had a Saturday Night Live. and I and it went to Saturday Night Live. And I interviewed the guy who was the Lauren Michaels of right of, of Germany. Okay, his name was Jackie Katz. Is he right? also Canadian, uh, German. Yeah, but he 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 was clearly funny, and he showed me one one of their fake commercials, which was in German, but still hilarious. They had a bit the the yellow pages there. Yeah. had a had a regular commercial. where saying if you know if you're having trouble with something, get an expert. And they open the yellow pages, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So in this case, there was a the takeoff in this and the. the the uh, Romans are nailing Christ to the cross. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> and he falls off. <laughs> oh, no. And they open the yellow page and say, get an expert. You're kidding <laughs> and me. I, and I, That's one of the funniest. It hilariously funny. Yeah. But he was joining me because that I said, do you. a real commercial. Yes. I said, do you get you know, a, a parody? It was a parody right. on Saturday oh, Night I Live. See. Okay, I got it. was a it. parody commercial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to say it. Yeah. But the church went insane Well, in yeah. Germany. It went insane. So he was telling me that story. So he was a very interesting guy. And I said to him, so you, you have 90 minutes two, two or three times a month? Yes, we do. that." I said, how many writers do you have? And he said, we have, we have six. I said, you're doing that with six writers? I mean, Saturday Night Live's got 20 writers right? at least. Yeah. And he says, well, Bill, you have to understand, we don't have any Jews. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Now he was Jewish, of right, course. Right. Well, okay. Yeah, of Still. Course.
0: That's a very funny line. But right. anyway, so wow. so
1: so he's he's and then they say you got to go see Harold Schmidt's show. So I go and I sit in the audience for Harold Schmidt's show and Harold Schmidt's show looks exactly like Letterman's show. Wow. The desk is the same. The depth of the thing, the color of the floor is the same. Right. The band is in the same. Way. I'm like it is exactly the same. Wow. Except it's in German. And <laughs> And I'm sitting in the audience, and he's telling jokes, and I could tell that he's good. Yeah. I could tell that he has, and the audience is like, over. And, but I can't I, I can't get the jokes, obviously. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we finish, and he, Schmidt wants me to come up and sit in a room with his writers. Mm-hmm. So I go up to his conference room, and, and they all speak English. And there's like eight or nine writers and him. And he speaks perfect English, and he's like, okay, now tell these guys how Dave does it. Them, well, how does the show go? You know? And they were all asking me questions. What happened to him? Yeah. And it was like they wanted to break it down so they could copy it even better. Wow. <laughs> Where are the chairs placed in the writer's and room? And he, he actually was really successful, and he did it for a while, and then he stepped away. And he came back later. He he was a big hit there. He was a big hit. There. And
0: how long, how many years would he have been on? Do you oh, know?
1: He, I don't know if he's still on. I don't know. <laughs> okay, but, but he was a pretty he was very successful at it. And um, so that that worked. There's a there's a country where it worked because it was the same thing. Well, see,
0: Canadians maybe should go down and study. They should sit around Colbert show or, or uh, there was a guy Mike Bullard who was on the air for six or seven yeah. years here, which is but who did he book? Uh, well, this is part of his problem. He, you know, he, and he was on opposite these shows that had spectacular guests yeah, every night. Roller, yeah. and he would have the guy who did the traffic reports over <laughs> Toronto as a guest <laughs> this so is was, what I mean at a clear disadvantage this is what me. I mean because and, and, and I ran into Mike not too long ago I said Mike would, would you like to be doing this now and he said oh so I could be on opposite 12 other guys yeah. who had better guests than I have yeah. you know like
1: it's it just impossible
0: we're too close to
1: the, well, this, the big that, show well that's particularly yeah.
0: bad with Canada yeah.
1: because you're right next to it an, and, and if you're a good performer in Canada you go to America right so, well, and you're you
0: on know, their shows Lauren Michaels went to america you know, you're right carry and paul schaefer and, yeah. and all these guys who uh you're right couldn't do it here um even norm mcdonald bill well even even norm mcdonald <laughs> who uh we were talking about earlier he's uh, had a long career but um he's uh one of these guys he was not a didn't make friends at nbc not don allmeyer wasn't a fan no during his well, why was he not a fan because uh mr mcdonald would would <laughs> mercilessly go after O.J. Simpson exactly. who was a great personal friend of Don Olmar. Exactly. By the way, and we should, we getting close to wrapping this up, but um, maybe you could share a bit of uh, one of your spectacular stories. Uh, Bill has written great depth on, on he's the expert on late night, but you've covered all of television. Um, O.J. Simpson gave <laughs> you a phone call one time. One time?
1: It was uh, it was uh, the day after he was acquitted. Um <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> or maybe two days later what happened was uh he gets acquitted and um of course it's the story of the country for year for months and year a year at least and yeah. and now he's acquitted which no one believes it could possibly have happened right right and uh so nbc books him to do a uh two-hour live interview with katie Couric and tom brokaw wow in in prime time uh then you know like three four five days later wow and uh so i come to the office and i start hearing that uh NBC, at the new york times at the times mm-hmm. i start hearing that nbc thinks he might cancel he's going to back out because mm-hmm. of the civil s- case that was still against him right because his lawyers were saying are you nuts right right uh so i'm i'm covering i'm, I'm t- talking to the people at nbc news and then they're like well we don't know we're we're trying to convince them. and uh so it's sort of up in the air still at this point and, and late in the afternoon, pretty late in the day, uh, the phone rings and a, guy, and a voice says to me, uh, you're doing this thing about NBC and OJ? I said, yeah. You want an exclusive? Well, yeah, I guess. Why? Hold on. Just like uh, that. Hey, man, how you doing? <laughs> OJ? <laughs> and you had
0: talked to him before. I had talked to him before because I wrote a book about Monday Night Football. Right, right.
1: And I had a good, good yeah. um, interaction with him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he knew who I was. Yeah. Um but I think maybe Don Almyer said you can talk to him. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's exactly why he made the call. But he he's on the call and he's going to explain to me why he's decided to back out of this thing. My lawyers are saying you know, blah blah blah. But I have OJ Simpson on the freaking phone. <laughs> and he hasn't talked to anyone since he was in jail. So you're waving at editors at this point. I'm, what are you I, doing? I, with my, you? My co- the person who also covered TV with me, Lori Mifflin, mm. is sitting across from me. There's like books between us. Mm. And her head slowly rises <laughs> over there. <laughs> and he mouths to me, Is that OJ? Yeah, yeah. And I go like this. Yeah. And she runs and she gets the national letter. And I'm just trying to keep him going. And they're passing me notes, you know, about yeah. what, what about this and what about that. Yeah. Now, I'm I'm not prepared for it. I'm not taping it because I'm not – I wasn't ready, so I'm scribbling, and, like, yeah. and it's, you know, um, he's a little nuts. Really? He's a little – he certainly sounded different to me. Yeah, under uh, some
0: stress, probably.
1: Well, he he sounded <laughs> almost menacing. I mean, really? maybe it was really? my wow. projecting, but, like, I'll give you an example. I said, well, you know, why did you cancel? And he said, well, I, you know, I heard that uh, – that uh, Brokaw and Cork were sharpening their knives to come after me. Wow. And I'm thinking, bad metaphor, O.J. Poor, poor choice bad, of words. Bad yeah. metaphor. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. <laughs> and I asked him what he thought of Marsha Clark at one oh, point. Yeah, yeah. And he said, well, I'd like to get her in an alley and knock her block off. Said this to you. Yeah. Like a day after the acquittal, two days yeah, after the acquittal. Yeah, but the worst thing he said was, I said, "Look, OJ, I got to ask you because you know there's a, there were tapes of of Nicole making phone calls to the police, yeah. and you've, there were several domestic abuse charges. So I got to ask you about these things." And he says, "Bill, let me ask you something. You're a married guy, like right? Right?" I said, "Yeah, And so you know what it's like. That's sometimes right." <laughs> oh, yeah. So uh, that's what he th- said. Yes, so. <laughs> So my so so I write the so what really happened was amazing. I'm I'm right against the first deadline for the first edition in those days, which comes out in the street like nine o'clock. Right, so it's, you got to be finished by eight to get it right. through. So I'm writing it, and the and then the editor says, "All right, look, do, we'll do a thousand words for the first edition, and then we'll you know double it, but you know get get the thing done." You know, so I'm banging it out. Yeah, OJ yeah, Simpson yeah, called, yeah, blah, blah, yeah, yeah. and I get it out and it and we get done, and, and then I go right back to reporting. My phone rings again. No, the, the message light's on my phone. Yeah. He called back. There's one thing I forgot to tell you, man. Uh, such and so. <laughs> he called back. Wow. want to make sure you have the whole I, story. I know. So anyway, so I get this thing. And it goes in the first edition. And, and of course, it's in it's on the street at nine o'clock. Right. On the street at nine o'clock. Wow. Larry King used to do CNN right, shows. And, and he had like 49 people on his set to talk about the OJ case. Right. 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 And someone hands him. He's given an interview to Bill Carter at the New York yeah. And the next thing I know, my phone rings. And they say hey, did you interview uh, OJ? I said, well, yeah. You're on the air. I said, I'm, what? Really? Just like <laughs> and, that. And I'm on the end. Larry King is asking me. And I'm supposed to be writing. Now. So they went like, right from Cato Kaelin to you. Kind of. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah he may have been on the set. He may have been on the set. Oh. And, and he asked me, and I said, you know, I gave him a few things, but I, you know, I, got, I I I, was still working on the story, you know. Wow. So I hang up, and then this would never happen today because the Times would eat the publicity up. Yeah. Now They would love it. But they come to me, and they say, we've decided don't do any publicity for this. And I'm like, well, I already did this, Larry King. Oh, yeah. well, don't do anything else. Don't do anything else. Why? I don't know. But they didn't want to do anything else. So, okay. No. D- d- that's, that's fine. And, and I'm getting besieged. My phone is going crazy with yeah. people calling me. Yeah. And Jeff Zuckers, who ran the the t- Today Show yeah. at the time mm. he calls me you, we gotta book you and I'm like how am I gonna do what, if I do them instead of GMA and what am I gonna do with right. those and I'm thinking how to do, and my wife calls me and she says what the hell happened <laughs> what, why <laughs> <laughs> We're pho- the phone's going oh, insane oh, at home OJ called her was No, right? it was every, <laughs> so I had calls from like Australia I mean it was insane wow so at, in, in those days there was, a, there was the old building, and there was a back way out, and there was camera crews all around the front of the building waiting for me to come out of the building. Really? Every, every camera crew in the world wow. was waiting for me, and I went out the back. Did you? Because <laughs> they told me, no, don't do it.
0: Wow, what a, what a great, great story. <laughs> Did you remember some of the shots that uh, Norm Macdonald would take? I, I think he said something like, oh, I- right after the uh, acquittal, uh, he was, Saturday Night Live came on and he goes ah, the Supreme Court just ruled that it's okay to murder you know <laughs> stuff like that like yeah. it, it, you could see where uh, his oh, buddy would be provoked it yeah. was
1: unrestrained right? but very funny very very
0: very, very funny, very funny. Yeah. well Bill uh, I think that we've reached the end here well, you and I could talk for another we day could. and a half
1: and, and I, I hope other people would want to hear it <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well uh, I really really appreciate this and uh, please tell us uh, the name of the documentary is uh, it's called The Story of late night and it's going to be on cnn we don't know yet and it's uh, how many uh, episodes six okay and uh, you're quite proud of it We're, we should look forward to it yeah, absolutely so uh i i definitely will thank you so much uh for your time and and it's wonderful to see you in toronto for a change bill anytime with you my friend awesome hope to see you soon thanks thanks a lot bill